What? College matters. What? College, college matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. matters. You know, you said earlier that receiving one of these words is transformative, and it is. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons I like doing the work of fellowship advising is I think working on the applications themselves is transformative. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think students, they have to dig so deep in order to write these materials. And they're, they're thinking about their why, like their why, why do I do these That is Jenny Highest, Director of the Office of Nationally Competitive Awards at the University of Cincinnati. Hello, I'm your host, Venkat Raman. When Jenny was in college, she did not apply for any of the nationally competitive awards. In fact, she didn't even know of their existence. It so happened that Jenny discovered fellowship advising after graduating with her PhD. She really liked working with college students and helping them with their writing and helping develop their goals. That experience brought her to the University of Cincinnati to head up the Nationally Competitive Awards Office. In this podcast, Jenny Highest shares her background, her role as director, the various Nationally Competitive Awards, the importance of these awards, how they help students with awards application process, and her advice for high schoolers. Now, before we jump into the podcast, here are the high fives, five highlights from the podcast. I do a number of things. I set the strategic vision for the office. I decide which awards are in our advising portfolio. Kind of set the plan for for promoting those awards, build relationships across campus to try to make sure mm-hmm. that we're getting the word out to students, um, get the support that we need from other faculty and staff, which is so essential to a fellowship mm-hmm. advising enterprise, mm-hmm. and you know hold information sessions. It makes these opportunities that much more accessible to students mm-hmm. because like I like I was as an undergrad, I think your average student doesn't even know these exist. Sure. And these are the kinds of opportunities that can be really transformative for a student. That falls, we, one of the ways that we could divide up the nationally competitive awards that we advise now is we could talk about them as post-baccalaureate opportunities and pre-baccalaureate sure. opportunities. Sure. And so meaning an opportunity that can be held once a student graduates versus something that they can apply for and have while pursuing a bachelor's. Came out of the recognition that I realized that working with so many students at UC who are all going through essentially the same thing, right? <laughs> but they're doing right. it alone. Yeah. And I thought there's some value in bringing these folks together who want to opt into this and forming a community around that. Sure. And a community of mutual support where they recognize, oh, I'm struggling with this piece of the application somebody is too it's not just me it's hard uh-huh. <laughs> you know right. it's a it's a process i think i'm just looking for curiosity mm-hmm. like somebody that has a core curiosity about 
the world around them, about others, about why things work the way they do. Curiosity mm-hmm. about themselves, wanting to know themselves better. Mm-hmm. I think if you can come in with that curiosity, that desire to learn, that will serve you really well in college. These were the high fives brought to you by College Matters. Alma Matters. matters. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For my newsletter, visit almamatters.substack.com. Now, I'm sure you want to hear the entire podcast with Jenny. So without further ado, here is Jenny Highest. So maybe the best place to start is tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then we can dive in. Sure. Well, I my name is Jenny Highest. I am the director of the Office of Nationally Competitive Awards at the University of Cincinnati. I am originally from Ohio. I grew up in a small rural community, although not near Cincinnati. So when I moved back to Cincinnati for this job, that was my first time living in Ohio for for quite some time. Um, Mm -hmm. When I went to college, I went pretty far from home. I went down to Nashville, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. and I went to a small private university there. And I actually started college as a finance and economics major. Mm -hmm. And I ended up switching my major after my first year of college because uh, it just wasn't, there was something that I was wanting from college that it wasn't providing to me. It didn't feel Mm -hmm. entirely satisfying to me. I think there was a kind of intellectual work I was craving in college Mm -hmm. and I decided to switch my major to English and Mm -hmm. I started studying literature and I really found what I was looking for through that. Uh, The Mm -hmm. kinds of questions that I was wanting to ask about the world around me, about myself. Um, I don't think the study of literature is the only way to ask those questions, but I do think it's a pretty special way of doing it. Sure. I will say, looking back, I think if I had stuck with the economics major and gotten out of the, the first year introductory courses, yeah. I probably would have found it a little bit more exciting when we got into more of that theoretical work, but I didn't get there. I switched to English and I ended up completing my bachelor's in English, a minor mm-hmm. in Spanish, and I kept a minor mm-hmm. in, in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not apply for any nationally competitive awards. Okay. I'll go ahead and volunteer <laughs> that. I didn't even know about them. had no idea uh-huh. they existed, uh-huh. uh, but I took a couple years off from between undergrad, after undergrad, and yeah. I decided to go to graduate school. So mm-hmm. I went, made another big move up to Eastern Pennsylvania, and I went to Lehigh University, mm-hmm. and I enrolled in a master's program in English. Mm-hmm. And that was a, what we would call a generalist master's program. So it required mm-hmm. students to take courses in a ri- wide variety of literary fields, a little mm-hmm. different time period. And after I completed that master's degree, I just, I went on to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. I ended up specializing uh, in, in, well, my major field was American literature, 1865 and 1945, which is mm-hmm. American realism, naturalism, and modernism. Mm-hmm. And then my secondary field was British modernism. And mm-hmm. I ended up writing a dissertation on female modernists and their literary experimentations. I wrote about both American and British modernists. 
And then by the time I graduated with my PhD, I had a lot of teaching experience under my belt. I was mm -hmm. a fellow throughout the whole duration. Uh -huh. I mostly taught first year writing courses. I spent a lot of time reading student essays and, and, mm -hmm. and teaching writing. I taught some literature along the way. Um, but I graduated with that doctorate and a lot of teaching experience. By the time I graduated, I had one publication out on a Harlem Renaissance Renaissance poet named Ann Spencer, and mm -hmm. I had another essay under review that eventually got published on Zora Neale Hurston. Mm -hmm. So I had a research product that I was really excited about and a lot of teaching experience and that doctorate. So that, that's my educational background. So how did you end up at the University of Cincinnati? Yeah, well, it, wasn't the most direct path in some respect because uh, like a lot of fellowship advisors i mm -hmm. i did not go to grad school to become a fellowship advisor mm -hmm. uh, now there i have met someone who did actually the assistant director in my office uh, she went mm -hmm. to grad school so she could do fellowship advising but i i got a phd in english because i wanted to be an english professor mm -hmm. and when it became increasingly clear to me that, um, well, let's just say the, 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 the job market and tenure track professorship, especially in the humanities is grim. Yeah, um, yeah. And that, yeah. that's probably, that's a topic for another conversation or yeah, a different yeah. podcast, but there aren't a lot of them out there. And so yeah. uh, when I, and when I first went to grad school, I think I went with the idea I was, I was young when I started and I thought, well, I'll move anywhere for any job. And, mm -hmm. and when I came out the other side, that just didn't feel as true. I was, I was different by that time. And, and that the path to going after that interact position felt uh, certainly uncertain. <laughs> certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and it would require a lot of moving around and temporary positions. And I was fortunate when I graduated to get a visiting assistant professorship at Lehigh. So mm -hmm. it kind of gave me this holding space to apply for those jobs. But I also started asking myself some questions about, mm -hmm. about what I really wanted my life to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I just didn't have the option of being a tenure track professor, mm -hmm. what would I do? Mm -hmm. And those were some big and scary questions to ask. Right. Um, because it was also asking questions about who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and my identity, because I think being an academic is really also an identity mm -hmm. um, and being a scholar. And so I started to think carefully about all the experiences that I had, the different forms of work that I'd done, teaching mm -hmm. and research. And I started to think about, well, what do I really love about those things? What are the core features of them that I, that I like, that are satisfying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also asked myself, well, what do I not like about those things? Um, sure. Because even if you like the work that you're doing, there's something about it you don't enjoy, probably. Yeah, like there's yeah. some feature. And so from there, I started to think about, well, what are the qualities of, that I like that might be re reproducible elsewhere? And I realized mm -hmm. that I really felt like it was such a privilege to get to work with college students. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed uh, the conversations around that we would have around their writing that were also connected to who they are and how they were developing goals and so um, 
just had some good fortune that at the time Lehigh was building a fellowship's office. And the chair of my department sent me a link to the job ad and she said to him, this sounds like something you might be interested in. And I had never heard of fellowship advising. And when I started to read about it and learn more about it, and I thought, well, there, I see such parallels between the work that I did as, a, as an instructor, as a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, and fellowship advising. And, and it was half fellowship advising, half some other work in the area of international affairs. Um, and they both parts appealed to me. So I applied, got the job. I started as an assistant director of fellowship advising and United Nations programs at Lehigh. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a while. And from I started in January 2017. And yeah. I quickly realized that the fellowship advising side of things was really for me, that yeah. that was exciting to me. And when I saw the job at the University of Cincinnati come open, that would bring me back to my home state. I applied for that. And I've been here ever since uh, November 2018. So maybe the best uh, thing to talk about next is what's your role at University of Cincinnati? And then I want to kind of talk about why this is all important, all the awards and all that. But let's just first talk about your role here. Well, as the director of the office, Up until very recently, I was the only full-time professional staff in the office. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I was not all things, but most things to that office. (laughs) I had some some wonderful support from a graduate assistant. And Mm -hmm. for any students who are listening and might not know what that is, I'll just say that uh, a graduate assistant is a graduate student, a full-time graduate student who's pursuing their degree, and then they work in my office 20 hours a week for a student. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so we were a, a team, and uh, what I do, I do a number of things. You know, I set the strategic vision for the office. You know, I decide which awards are in our advising portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, kind of set the plan for for promoting those awards, build relationships across campus to try to make sure Mm -hmm. that we're getting the word out to students, um, get the support that we need from other faculty and staff, which is so essential to a fellowship Mm -hmm. advising enterprise, Mm -hmm. and, you know, hold information sessions. And uh, a big part of what I do also is one-on-one advising. So students can come to me and Mm -hmm. we have conversations over the course of the years that they work with the office, very focused on how they are developing students, what their goals are, identifying any awards that could be a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. And then when, if and when they decide to apply for an award, I'm there to help them navigate that process. So mm-hmm. everything from giving, brainstorming their their approaches to their essays, giving feedback on their essays, helping them figure out how to get letters of recommendation, mm-hmm. uh, help them through all of that. Uh, also uh, oversee any campus selection process that might take yeah. place for yeah. certain awards. Um, and then uh, if they get an interview, we do interview prep as well. Uh, we have writing workshops, things like that. So we try to be a pretty full service office. So why why are these competitive awards important? I mean, what's what's the importance of these things? I, I understand that students, obviously, it means a lot to them. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to the university? What does it mean to the ecosystem? That's a great question. 
I think a fellowship advising enterprise serves a, a few different important roles in the university. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, it makes these opportunities that much more accessible to students mm -hmm. because like I, like I was as an undergrad, I think your average student doesn't even know these exist. Sure. And these are the kinds of opportunities that can be really transformative for a student. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so it's important to have an office like this so that the students aren't missing out on the chance to, to do the kinds of things that could really enrich their experience as students, enhance their development, open up possibilities for them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so that's one thing, and I think the another thing that's pretty exciting about a fellowship advising office is that we provide a kind of, I think, specialized and intensive mentorship to students mm -hmm. that are that, and especially I think in a university like the University of Cincinnati that's very large. Um, mm -hmm. they, it's a way to kind of create a, a smaller environment in which sure. students who have that drive and that determination and that excitement to, to maybe pursue a, a path that's a little bit less conventional, perhaps. I think mm -hmm. a lot of these awards do represent that. Um, mm -hmm. It's a way to, to foster that, that potential in those students um, mm -hmm. through that individualized attention that I think can really help students flourish. Cool. So uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the different types of awards. I mean, there are mm -hmm. so many of them. Um, how does a student navigate through that? I mean, give us some of the top ones first, and then we can sort of talk about, you know, what, where it makes sense for a student to think about these things. Sure. Well, I would, you know, I'm, I don't know how everyone defines top award. I will say one of the ones that I think is most popular at the University of Cincinnati is the Fulbright U.S. Student Program. Mm -hmm. And that falls, we, one of the ways that we could divide up the nationally competitive awards that we advise on is we could talk about them as post-baccalaureate opportunities and pre-baccalaureate sure. opportunities. Sure. And so meaning an opportunity that can be held once a student graduates versus something that they can apply for and have while pursuing a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. So Fulbright falls into the post-baccalaureate opportunity. You, mm -hmm. you can apply for it. Uh, this You can start working on your materials the summer between your junior and senior year. That's your first chance to apply. But mm -hmm. it is a 10-month post-baccalaureate uh, grant that takes you abroad and mm -hmm. you live and work in your host community carrying out your Fulbright project. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons I think Fulbright is so popular is that it, it's a vast program. Mm -hmm. 160 countries participate in it and mm -hmm. there are two different grant types. One is study research. So with that you would be conducting a research project of your own design in your host community. Uh -huh. uh, under the supervision of an affiliate there, sure. or, or you could, in some cases, depending on where you're going, pursue graduate study with a supportive Fulbright. The other mm -hmm. grant type is the English Teaching Assistant Grant, which we tend to refer mm -hmm. to by its acronym, ETA. And in that mm -hmm. case, you are 
spending 10 months placed in a school where English is being taught and you were there as the fluent English speech speaker to assist that instructor. Mm -hmm. Very popular award among UC students. Uh, so undergrad, graduating seniors can apply, grad students can apply for it. There's just so much versatility to it. I think mm -hmm. Fulbright kind of likes to say there's a Fulbright for everyone. And, and I think they can say that because there's just so many opportunities there. So that's one option. Mm -hmm. uh, another, mm -hmm. that's a, one popular award. Uh, another one that that we have a strong track record, track record with is Goldwater Scholarship. Sure. I, I know I know you had the Goldwater president on your your podcast, um, yeah. but but Goldwater is it is the goal of the Goldwater Scholarship is to identify and support undergraduate researchers in the natural sciences, mm -hmm. math or engineering, mm -hmm. and uh, so that is one of the pre baccalaureate opportunities that you sure. can apply for and the the we can I don't know we can talk more later about some of the selection criteria if you want but or the eligibility criteria but sure. it is uh, that's pr pretty popular there's but there's a whole range of things there's so many you want to study a critical need language there are awards for that that's critical language scholarship and foreign that that will take you abroad to have a cultural and immersion experience where you study the language. There's the Truman Scholarship, which provides funding for graduate school for, for change agents that want to pursue careers in public service. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just so many different opportunities. If you want to go, uh, go to the UK after you finish your undergraduate studies to pursue a graduate degree, there's a whole host of awards there with, with Mitchell and Marshall and Rhodes and Gates Cambridge. There's Knight Hennessy at Stanford to support graduate studies there. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really comes down to a question of, of what your goals are, what you want to achieve, and finding a, an award that's a good fit for you. I'm assuming all these awards come with um, money that helps the student. I mean, in the case of mm -hmm. Fulbright for their 10 months abroad, um, you know, and of course with Goldwater, I know it's a amount to do research for their mm -hmm. junior and senior years typically. Um, now, let's just take Fulbright. I mean, uh, you said it was the most, one of the most popular ones. What is it that Fulbright sees in a student that they give an award to? I mean, what is it that uh, an alum act or maybe an alum, I guess, since it's after they graduate. So what are they looking for? Yes, so you were right when you said student because you can work on your application while you're still enrolled. Okay, okay. Um, but well, Fulbright is one of the ones where I, I think you almost, if you're talking about Fulbright, you should just wear a shirt that says it depends on it. <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's what the Fulbright reps tend to say as well because what, what they're looking for can be so specific to the grants in the country, but- mm -hmm. I would say that the first thing that students have to remember if they're interested in Fulbright is that the Fulbright mission is cultural exchange mm -hmm. and, and improved mutual understanding. And I mm -hmm. think whether it's Fulbright or any award, an important first step is to look at the mission and the history of the program mm -hmm. so that you can really understand what it's all about. 
because again, mm -hmm. you're trying to find that that good fit for for yourself. Mm -hmm. And and so knowing anybody who's working on a Fulbright application needs to always remember the ultimate goal is that exchange. Mm -hmm. And these projects are a way of achieving that exchange. Mm -hmm. Uh, so with that in mind, knowing that they're looking for people who are essentially going to be cultural ambassadors, they're going to be representatives of the, the U.S. Mm -hmm. and all its diversity abroad, um, mm -hmm. we can know that, that Fulbright's going to be looking just for some general criteria like flexibility, mm -hmm. uh, cultural sensitivity, uh, and, and respect, you know, the ability to communicate across cultural differences. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of ways to be able to demonstrate one's capacity for that without having yeah. gone abroad if somebody, yeah. you know, hasn't had a chance to do that. Um, sure. They're looking for, um, you know, that curiosity, that open-mindedness, uh, maturity, <laughs> because again, 10 months of living yeah. on your own abroad, you, you need to have that. So right. those are just some of the characteristics in general that they're looking for. Then it can get kind of specific. You know, if you're if you want to be an ETA, they're yeah. looking for certain past experiences that you've had. Same for your research experiences that are appropriate to the project. How about the Goldwater Scholarship? Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing there are fewer number or is that a much larger number? Yes. No, that's a smaller pool. Uh, it is, you know, when you get more into some of the niche awards, sometimes you get a smaller pool because, you know, for Goldwater, you have to have at least a 3.0 GPA. Mm -hmm. You have to have that commitment to pursuing a PhD in your yeah. field and, and a research career that, yeah. you know, whether that research career is at a national lab or in academia, they're flexible in that, but you have to really be going after that career. Um, but I would say Typically, we have smaller numbers for that. We can sure. put forward four candidates, yeah. and that's 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 another thing that students need to realize is some of these awards have have caps on the number of students that an institution can nominate, and so oh, we're okay. limited to four, possibly five. And the Truman application is a lot of work, certainly, yeah. and and I think. That's something that you can apply for your junior year. Mm -hmm. And they are looking for a pretty special combination of, of a strong track record of public service, a strong leadership profile, and, and, and academic strengths that are appropriate to what it is that you're planning to do. I'd say mm -hmm. what, or excuse me, Truman does not have a minimum GPA. There are probably a little bit more flexible when it comes to yeah. GPA than perhaps some other awards, uh, but they're looking for that that combination. Um, so, so looking for a student that really has, um, I think, their vision, their their issues that they really care about, and they understand that the effect that they want to have in the world, it's not something that they have to wait until the future. Yeah. To to start to work on, they're doing it from where they are right now, and yeah. they're they're doing everything they can to tap into the resources that are available to them to to affect positive change in the communities that they're serving. And yeah. so having so there's a 
a certain kind of background, a certain kind of profile that you're looking for for a Truman, Truman Scholar, for a Truman Candidate. And then it's a pretty involved application process too, I have to say. You, you mm -hmm. do commit to that work. Uh, there's a lot of essays to write. It involves a lot of self-reflection and you write a policy proposal. So, so it's an involved process. And, but I think that that is, you know, you said earlier that receiving one of these awards is transformative and it is. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I like doing the work of fellowship advising is I think working on the applications themselves is transformative. Mm -hmm. uh, that I think students, they have to dig so deep in order to write these materials. And they're, they're thinking about their why, like their why, why do I do these things? Why do they matter? Mm -hmm. What's the effect that maybe on a, with a level of concentration, um, that maybe they hadn't, they haven't quite done before. It doesn't mean they yeah. haven't thought about it or that they don't know why, but they haven't been, ha they haven't had to put it into words in this exactly. way. And so I think that in the process of applying, students more fully come into their own mm -hmm. than they ever have before. And I think that they're able to return to the work that they're doing and actually do it better. So tell us a little bit about how you help them with the application. Let's just take Fulbright, for example. Um, how, how, do you, how do you kind of assist the students? Well, we, ideally, mm -hmm. uh, well, what we love it is actually if we have known the student for a while before they even apply. Okay. You know, if there's a student that's <laughs> kind of been coming in for a couple years and we really had a chance to get to know them and and then it's here and they're applying for Fulbright because that just gives us a lot of a wider knowledge base and mm -hmm. makes it easier for us to, to help them. But sure. there are plenty, plenty, plenty of, of cases where that doesn't happen. You know, somebody finds their way to our office through our Fulbright advertising and our relationship starts uh -huh. at the, when the application process really starts. So we help them. We have a big Fulbright week. In mm -hmm. early April, we host mm -hmm. that every year. It coincides with the opening of the Fulbright application. Mm -hmm. And it just really, uh, a series of events are, that's just designed to just kick off the process for everyone. So mm -hmm. we're, once we get our students who are interested in applying, we encourage them to go through our Fulbright boot camp. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a cohort-based advising uh, apparatus, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that that came out of the recognition that I realized that working with so many students at UC who are all going through essentially the same thing, right. <laughs> but they're doing right. it alone. Yeah. And I thought there's some value in bringing these folks together who want to opt into this and forming a community around that sure. and a community of mutual support. So they recognized, oh, I'm struggling with this piece of the application. Somebody is too. It's not just me. It's part, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, right. it's a, it's a process it, this is sure. to kind of normalize that. Or conversely, I struggled with this piece, but my, my peer over here, they came up with a really interesting way to approach it. And it's made me kind of think differently about how I might handle it. So, mm -hmm. so just, just let them be a resource to one another. So we do have some workshops that we run through that, but it's also largely we train them in how to do peer review. They do peer review 
throughout the course of the month that they participate in the boot camp. Mm -hmm. And the goal was not to complete the application in that month because it usually takes a bit more than that, but mm -hmm. to just give them a really solid launch on that application. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they'll also form some, some relationships in that space that they carry with them out of there so they continue to offer peer review to one another on their own time. Sure. So that's sure. one way. But, uh, but along the way, we're also reading their drafts providing feedback to them. Mm -hmm. We can engage before that in brainstorming conversations if that's what they need. But really just uh, having, giving them that feedback, having conversations about the feedback and giving them advice on, on how to get their affiliation, helping them think about how to approach their, their recommenders so that they get the strongest recommendations possible. Uh, that I'd say those are the main ways that we're we're supporting our our students through the Fulbright process. How do how do students find out about you? I mean, um, is there as a freshman, would they know of the existence of your office? Do they know these awards exist? How do you kind of let students know so that they're thinking about it early on rather than you know? a week before the Fulbright application. Mm -hmm. Well, that is our kind of never ending task, I'd say, is trying to figure <laughs> out how do, we, how do we get the word out about our office. Right. We do it, we engage in a variety of outreach efforts. Yeah. We, we have a newsletter that we send out, but you already have to be connected to our office to get that newsletter. Yeah. We are trying to do in-class presentations, we have social media. We try to put our announcements in other offices, newsletters. We are, sometimes we do direct emailing. We can pull student lists. Mm -hmm. For Fulbright, we can't do that. That's not really practical because really any major, a, yeah. any, a student from any major can apply. So there's over 46,000 students at UC. We can't, we can't yeah. email 46,000 students. Uh, but, but for things like critical language scholarship, mm -hmm. which offers opportunities among other languages to study Russian, Japanese, Arabic. Well, we have students that are taking Russian and Japanese and Arabic, and sure, those are sure. smaller lists. So we can pull student lists and do some direct outreach. But okay. it's just constant. It's, so it's a variety of things. And we try to have strong relationships with other offices, with faculty on campus, and just whatever way we can try to get students into the office. I was just wondering if there are any interesting stories or see one of the one of the challenges I would imagine is that students want to apply to award X, but um, you know, do you do you kind of feel like that might not be appropriate or they might not qualify for some reason. Is that something that you would advise against or is that you just let anyone who wants to apply for an award you assist them? Is there a, is there a filtering process of any kind or you wouldn't engage in that? Well, I, there's two different kinds of awards. Let's start with that. There yeah. are there are direct apply. Well, I said there were post-baccalaureate and pre-baccalaureate. Well, there's yeah. another way to divide the awards. There are awards that are what we would call direct apply awards. 
Yeah. And there are institutional endorsement awards. Okay. If an award isn't a directify award, then really it's any student can apply. And yeah. they don't even have to work with our office. They could entirely bypass the Office of Nationally Competitive Awards and apply on their own, and that's fine. We yeah. try to encourage them not to do that. We want them to work with us because even though they're direct apply awards, we might have a lot of experience with those sure. awards. Maybe we've even served as national reviewers for some of those awards. And so we want them to benefit from what we know about these scholarships and what it takes to be competitive. But with those really it's just up to the student if they want to go after it and they want to try for it that's great Got it. for the endorsement awards they have to go it's competitive at the campus levels they have to first go before a committee that's been assembled to review those materials and and then decide whether to put a student forward okay and that is you know faculty and staff who have experience with a scholarship, looking at those materials, conducting an interview, and then deciding who should get that nomination. Okay. So there can be some, I think the language you used filtering out at the campus level there. As for whether we do that in our advising, really it's a delicate balance because I don't ever want to really take the stance of just telling somebody yes, no, it, because also sometimes you don't know. Some, you know Absolutely. You're, Absolutely. You're, yeah, like you are, it, it, yes, there are certain things that we know these awards are looking for, especially when you're getting to things like Rhodes and Marshall and fantasy yeah. enforcement. They, they want that. It's the big leadership profile that they're really uh -huh. looking for. But sometimes it's in the course of working with a student and having conversations that you sort of excavate the full richness of their experience. Sometimes they yeah. don't do themselves justice. So yeah. you have to be careful early on. And I, so really, I don't think it's for us to be making a quick judgment and say, no, you're not a good fit, but it's to try to facilitate a student's own self-assessment uh, to help them figure out, do they think that this is a good fit and do they think that they're a good fit for the scholarship? We don't want a student to rule themselves out uh, because sometimes these students can underestimate themselves. But yeah. you know, we also understand this is a lot of work and we that, that, that all, there are so many benefits to the process, but I think the most benefit comes from a student who's going through the process of applying for a award that they're a good fit for. Are you, are you finding in the five years that you've been there now, um, are the number of students applying for awards increasing? What is the trend like? What does it look like? It's tricky to speak of trends as we're emerging from a pandemic. That's true. Especially when so many of these opportunities are focused internationally or, like, or yeah. global opportunities because so many things just didn't happen. Over, over that time, or they had selection, you know, Fulbright, you may have won a Fulbright, but then you couldn't go on your Fulbright. Your Fulbright got deferred. Yeah. Or you, you won a critical language scholarship, but it had to be done remotely. And, and so I, I think it's, it's, I hadn't been here very long before it started. It's, mm -hmm. it's difficult still to, to speak about what typical or and we're figuring it now what's our, what are the phrase that gets around our new normal um, yeah so I, I would say throughout 
the pandemic, the thing I thought was really remarkable on our end is that our numbers stayed pretty consistent. Okay. Because I think it would have been easy for things to fall off. But and as far as his friends, you know, one year, sometimes it's a bit unpredictable too. One year, a certain award will just get a lot of applications. It's just popular sure. that year. And then sure. another year, it maybe is less so. And then another one kind of spikes. So uh, I can't necessarily identify rhyme or reason behind that. Okay, so Jenny, we're going to start winding down. And okay. I thought it would be a good idea, mm-hmm. you know, as they think about college and from your own experience and your experience on U Cincinnati's campus now, what would you tell them? Really embrace college as a time for exploration. Mm-hmm. There, it, the, the major that you start out with, it may not be the one you end up completing. <laughs> it might be, but you might change. Yeah. Or uh, I guess, in other words, they're, they're, the whole point of college and the whole point of an education is to encounter ideas and possibilities that you hadn't encountered before. Right. So come to know things you didn't previously know. Mm-hmm. Which means that there are so many opportunities that are going to open up in front of you. And to try mm-hmm. to be really, really receptive to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the best thing, if you were to ask me across all of the awards, what is the, what's the characteristic that I think I'm looking for? And that makes me think, oh, this, this person, there could be something here in these awards for them. And especially when mm-hmm. I'm, I'm meeting somebody in their first year where a lot of potential is still kind of unrealized, you know, yeah. it, I think I'm just looking for curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like somebody that has a core curiosity about the world around them, about others, about why things work the way they do. Curiosity mm-hmm. about themselves, wanting to know themselves better. Mm-hmm. I think if you can come in with that curiosity, that desire to learn, that will serve you really well in college. And I think that that can be easier said than done because a lot of high school or K through 12 education, not all of it, you know, there's a lot of variety in it, but it can lend itself toward a focus on getting the right answer, getting the good answer, getting right. the answer that can go on the test, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And and I understand to some extent why that is the way that it is. But when you come to college, if you can sort of shift your mindset to getting really interested in asking good questions mm-hmm. and following the question to whatever end it takes you, right. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great way to, to get a lot out of your time in college and to achieve your own exciting growth. So I think that's one piece of advice I would give. Uh, just in general about college. The other, a second piece, mm-hmm. we have two more. Second piece would be to really prioritize developing mentoring relationships in college. Mm-hmm. That is something that I think first year students don't always think about doing. Mm-hmm. And maybe in part it's because they've always been in school and maybe it starts to feel like they always will be. <laughs> There's <laughs> always a next year. Yeah. And College goes surprisingly quickly. Uh-huh. And to start from the time that you're there and being intentional in seeking out your, your relationships with faculty and staff who can support your development. 
And I think it takes more work in your first year because as a first year student, you might be in some really large classes mm-hmm. and it might be easy to feel like you're just a number in the crowd. And that's where using office hours becomes really important. And sometimes mm-hmm. students don't go to office hours because they think it's for students that are struggling. Right. And if you're struggling, go to office hours, certainly. But it's also for students that are excited to be there and have some questions outside of class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's an instructor who's in their field and you're thinking you want to go to grad school. Well, they went to grad school. So go talk to them about that and start learning about that. So sure. I think building those mentoring relationships and maintaining them, I think students that have a really positive college experience, they have those, those networks. And then I guess maybe the last piece of advice that I would give that's fellowship related specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is uh, to embrace the fellowship, the world of fellowship as an important part of your college experience and not mm-hmm. just something that is, is kind of tangentially related to it. Because uh-huh. I think I mentioned this before, but I think the great, a great way to use these, uh, these scholarships is they can put, they can make things that hadn't even been imaginable before. Like they put them in a realm of, of possibility. You know, you can imagine mm-hmm. they, that mm-hmm. there's, they, as you learn about a scholarship, you were learning about a possible path or you're learning about opportunities that you didn't even know exist or things that you could do that you didn't even know you could do. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that they can be sort of, well, on one hand, I would never ever advise a student to do anything or just for a scholarship, you know, yeah, um, like, you know, it's a, you know, if I could just check this box, then I'll be a good candidate. It usually doesn't work that way either, but it's just yeah, not a good, yeah. not a good way to go through life. But right. Uh, but but they can sort of be roadmaps. And you think, well, whether or not I apply for Truman Scholarship, maybe I will. I love the ideals that Truman is describing. And uh-huh. that's the kind of person that I want to be. And that's the kind of impact that I want to make in this world. Well, let mm-hmm. me learn a little bit more about what they think a Truman Scholar does while they're in, in college. What are the kinds of experiences they seek out? How do they develop? And so I think it can give you some direction. Yeah. And and so in a way that that's not about just doing something for the scholarship, but it kind of gives you a roadmap to think about how to use your time and how to use resources to become the person that you want to be while you're in college. And so um, I think that that's a great way to do that, to, to kind of fold it into your experience and, you know, don't fixate too much on on the selection rates <laughs> yeah. um, to the point that they, you know, don't let those be a deterrent. It's really about finding, you know, you are the best candidate for an award that is a really good fit for you. Yeah. And that's what it what it'll come down to. And to um, just just really be open to all the possibilities that could come your way through that. No, that's uh, awesome advice, Jenny. I think uh, you outlined some really good, deep ways of thinking about it. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your uh, insights on these awards and, you know, the, the way it operates so that, you know, folks out there can understand them as they step on their individual campuses, you know, in the near future. 
and we'll talk more. And I thank you for all the support and help you've given me uh, in terms of talking to lots of students and alumni from University of Cincinnati. Um, and we'll talk again. Thank you so much. Take care. Be safe. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast with Jenny Highest about nationally competitive awards at the University of Cincinnati. Specifically, we covered the Office of Nationally Competitive Awards, the types of awards and the popular awards, how to apply, and the advice for high schoolers. I hope you check out and find a nationally competitive award that fits your goals and interests while in college. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at almamatters.substack.com for curated episodes, takeaways, insights, and more. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you. College Matters. Alma Alma Matters. Matters.